Matthew chapter three, and we're going to read verses one through six this morning. Matthew chapter three says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. In Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I'll be honest with you this morning uh, that this message was prepared in mind with, the, uh, with Danielle from the Alpha Center coming. And uh, she's not here now, so uh, it may seem a little out of place this morning, but it is still, and it is still good to ponder these things, still good to think about uh, what our role in society is as a church and as, and as a people. We just passed, um, just a couple of months ago, we just passed the 49th anniversary of that decision, Roe v. Wade, the court decision in 73 that legalized abortion uh, throughout all of the United States. It was a moral and legal catastrophe. And, uh, and it just simply was not, it should never have been done either on legal grounds or constitutional grounds or on uh, moral grounds, but I'm excited that we are kind of in a place to where it, it's really looking like uh, there's a very good chance that that decision is going to be overturned, and uh, and we're certainly thankful for that. But beloved, don't think for a second that that is going to end the battle. In fact, uh, I was reading an article from USA Today that the uh, person, very much and a a pro-choice individual. Uh, who was writing about how if this decision is overturned, that is not going to be the end of the war. That is actually going to start the war. That is going to begin it. And we've all, we're already seeing fundraising like never before in the, in the interest groups. We're already seeing uh, people who are preparing their arguments, preparing all of their things uh, to get ready for the midterm elections in the event that this decision is overturned. Uh, we are going to have to be, we're going to have to be putting together our best arguments. We're going to have to be doing our, our best kinds of things that we do. And the question is, where does the church fall into this? The church has a role in this, I believe. And I believe it's a role that we should be fulfilling. It is a role that we should be involved with. I fear, though, beloved, that too often in our culture today, the word evangelical has become a political term, not a theological term. And I really fear today that the church has gotten so involved in fighting the cause that oftentimes we have forgotten to minister to the one who is caught by the sin. 
And I think that there is quite a few areas in life today where that is the case, where we're so involved and we're so determined to fight the cause that we kind of forget to love and to minister and be the church to the ones who are caught up in the sinful lifestyles. Beloved, there is a such thing as losing the soul for the sake of winning the argument. And, and we cannot do that. We cannot be involved in that. And so my purpose for you this morning is to, is to help us understand our role as a church in a, in a community, in a culture that has long left biblical morals, that has long left biblical ideals that kind of govern, uh, govern what we do, even in, even in a general kind of civic sense. I want you to understand this morning that we simply cannot lose the soul for the sake of winning the argument. As you look at the world that John came into, it was a world that was very much like our own. It was, it was bitterly divided. It was, it was uh, political parties right and left. When you think of the Sadducees and Pharisees, you have to think of them more in political terms than theological terms. You had the Herodians, you had the Zealots, you had the Essenes who just wanted to kind of separate from everybody and be by themselves. You had uh, all of these different interest groups and all of these different ones that were all vying and fighting for control. And that is the world that John the Baptist comes into and proclaims the message that we are going to be looking at for the next two weeks. And it's and given that excuse me, given that context that he walked into, and given the the similarity to the context we see today, I do think there are some things that we can learn from the Baptist this morning. Uh, by the way, his name is more properly called the Baptizer, uh, not John the Baptist. I heard someone say one time that we know Jesus was a Southern Baptist. How do we know that? Well, if you're baptized by a Methodist church, what are you? You're a Methodist. If you're baptized in a, in a Presbyterian church, what are you? Who is, who is Jesus baptized by? John the Baptist, right. And it was in Southern Judea, so that makes him a Southern Baptist. So, not quite, but, uh, but anyway, there are things that we as a Baptist church can learn from John the Baptist this morning, John the Baptizer, and we do want to see what his message was. Beloved, as a church, we must be about calling people to the kingdom of heaven, not, to, not necessarily to political parties, not necessarily to ideals or, or economic theories, even though those things are good as far as they go, but our role as a church is to call people to the kingdom of heaven as John did. And we're gonna see that we must be committed to that. We must be devoted to that mission. And so how can we be devoted to that? How can we commit ourselves to that goal? And we see a few things, a few examples that, that John gives us this morning. Number one, if we're gonna be committed to calling people to the kingdom of heaven, we must commit to the biblical message. We must commit to the biblical message. Look at chapter three and verse two. Matthew gives us a summary here of John's message. Now, we're gonna look at it in a little more detail next week, and Luke and John even give us more detail. 
But Matthew just gives us a summary in verse two where in the words of John the Baptist, he calls out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is really significant because if you turn the page and look at Matthew chapter four, verse 17, you will find that Jesus began his earthly ministry with that exact same command. And I think there's a I think there's a application right there that we need to make sure that our message is matching the message of Jesus, amen? We need to make sure that we are saying the same thing that Jesus is saying in his word. And so, but we're gonna go, we're gonna look at that. Look at this, look at this command. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What are we talking about here? The word repent, if you break it down in its most basic parts, it means, it kind of creates this idea to change one's mind. And because of that, there is a lot of confusion about what repentance is and what it means. You get some people that say that uh, to change your mind, it, it means to simply change your mind about Jesus to where you think Jesus was a, was a good teacher or a prophet or something like that. But, but then you change your mind and you decide, no, he's actually my savior. And, and, and there's kind of a really no more than an intellectual understanding, kind of an academic understanding of, of gospel facts. And that's what they will say that it means to repent. Um, another, another example I heard was an interview uh, with Joseph Prince and uh, Joel Olstein. And uh, in this interview, Joseph Prince is kind of defending his ministry, so to speak. And he says, you know, the word repent, it just means to change your mind. And even though Joel and I, we don't use the word repent, uh, the fact of the matter is people are repenting all the time. When you go from negative thoughts to positive thoughts, when you, when you begin to think of, stop thinking of yourself as a loser and start claiming your victory, claiming your, your faith, then you are repenting. Beloved, that is so far from the biblical idea. It, uh, according to Joel Stein and Joseph Prince, we, if we all join the optimist club, then that means we have repented. That is, that is not what biblical repentance is. It's you, if you look at the concept, not just the word, but you look at how the scriptures define and how the scriptures describe what repentance is, it is a fundamental change that affects your entire self. Yes, changing your thoughts are involved, but it is also a change of attitude. It is a change of desires. It is a change of affections, which lead to a change in behavior and change in deeds and actions, what we call the fruits of repentance. We relinquish control over our lives and we submit to Christ as King and Lord over us. We no longer hate, we no longer hate Christ, but we love him. We no longer love sin, but we hate it. That is biblical repentance. That is what we talk about. In other words, we fundamentally change our loyalty from self and sin to where now our loyalty and our priority is none other than Christ and his purposes, both in our life and in our church. That is 
repentance. That is what we talk about in repentance. And why is that so important? Because John says you need to repent because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, typically we use those kind of interchangeably. They are talking about the same thing. But what's interesting about this is that Matthew in the New Testament, he is the only gospel writer who uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Everyone else uses the term kingdom of God and, and, they're, and they're interchangeable. But I think Matthew is calling our attention to something because if you start to look at this phrase kingdom of heaven, you discover that Matthew is the only New Testament author that uses it, but there's also only one Old Testament author that uses it very, uh, very frequently and that is the book of Daniel. Daniel is the only one who uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven, with any frequency. And time and time again, he's referring to this kingdom. Of course, the Old Testament uh, talks about God's universal reign all throughout. But Daniel is using a very specific time when the kingdom of God, the universal reign of God, is going to come to the earth and is going to take over. In fact, Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Look at, this, look at this text. It says, this is Daniel speaking. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. By the way, what was one of Jesus's most favorite ways to refer to himself as? Son of man. And it's directly from this text. And so he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And watch this, verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, the kingdom of heaven specifically, it's, it has this idea of God's sovereignty, that he is over and above, that he is Lord, that Christ is Lord, and that now this time that Daniel foresees that, that, that the Lord will come and establish his kingdom on earth, John is saying, repent, because that time has come. The king is here. The one to whom the kingdom has been given has arrived. Something else you notice about this command, repenting, it's actually in a verb tense that is, that is continual, it's ongoing. In other words, we're not just talking about a one-time decision. We're talking about the beginning of a lifestyle that is characterized, the beginning of a life that is characterized by continual growth, by continual rejection of sin, by continual growth and holiness. In other words, it is a change of loyalty from sin and self to absolute total surrender and loyalty to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and his purposes for our life. You know, one of the neatest things I ever attended, uh, Roxanne, now all of you know that her mother passed away in, in 2003. And um, when we were there in Colorado Springs, she, she married a man from Nepal about, about a year or so before she died. And just a, just a wonderful guy, wonderful guy. And, and what was really cool was I got to see the process of him becoming a citizen of the U.S., 
And, uh, and when that time came, it took about seven years, but, but when that time came, he invited us to Denver, to the federal building, and we actually got to see a naturalization ceremony where, uh, where he became a citizen of the U.S. And, and in this ceremony, he swore allegiance to the uh, American flag. He, en- he renounced his allegiance to Nepal, and he was declared to now live free as a citizen of the United States. And beloved, when we repent of our sins and when we turn to Christ, we are renouncing our allegiance to the old self. We are renouncing our allegiance to the old kingdom and we are now free to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven by the power that Christ gives us in salvation. That's what happens. We are no longer citizens of the old kingdom. We are no longer our old selves. All that allegiance is gone. We are now a new creation created for a new kingdom and a new purpose that is holiness before God. That's what it means to repent. Have you renounced your old life fully? Have you renounced your old self? Or are you still holding on to something? that you're hoping to get some kind of benefit out of. You're, you're holding on to it because you just don't quite wanna give that up yet. Maybe there's some sin that you're hoping will, will still give you some joy or some entertainment or whatever it is. Have you renounced your old self? Have you repented? Are you continually growing in your freedom to live as Christ wants you to live? Beloved, that is the message that we are proclaiming. That is the message we are calling people to repent and to come into the kingdom of heaven. That is the biblical message. And in order to do that, we must commit to biblical authority. We must commit to biblical authority. That's why we do this. And verse three, for this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now, as you probably already know, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. I won't turn there, but you may remember that in the book of Isaiah, there's, there's two halves, kind of. It's not really half, but, but there, there's two primary parts. And the first part is really defined by Ahaz's lack of faith. He chose to disregard God. He chose to reject God and instead trusted in his own political ingenious or whatever he thought he had. And you may remember that because that is where the Emmanuel prophecy happens. That, that, uh, that Isaiah says that uh, there will be a child born, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's where that happens. But the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is nothing but judgment. I mean, there are some promises of salvation in there, but it's mostly contained of judgment, judgment, judgment because of Israel's lack of faith that is demonstrated by the King Ahaz. But then, toward the end of that, we meet another king by the name of Hezekiah, and basically the exact same thing happens where an invading army is coming. Isaiah comes and and tells him to trust in the Lord, and Hezekiah puts his faith not in earthly kingdoms, but he puts his faith in the Lord, and he is rescued. 
And now based on that faith, Isaiah 40 begins the rest of the book that is all about Israel's salvation. That is all about the time when when God will once again lead Israel through a new exodus that will be not an exodus from a kingdom, but an exodus from our greatest slavery, which is our slavery to sin. And God says in Isaiah 40, he sets up this, this pattern where as the deliverer comes, when the true king is anointed, he is always preceded by a forerunner. He is always preceded by someone who announces him, who, who anoints him, just like David was anointed by Samuel. And, and by the way, if you want to make a lot of comparisons there, look at the, look at the birth stories of Samuel, look at the birth stories of John the Baptist, and look at, their, look at their ministries, and you'll see there's a lot of correlation there. Why? Because both of them were the forerunner of God's chosen king, the, the Davidic king, Right? And so David was anointed by Samuel. Now we have a new forerunner who is going to announce a new king who is coming. God has established this pattern and all in the Old Testament, in fact, God even identifies who this prophet is gonna be. Do you remember in Malachi chapter four, one of the last verses in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter four, verse five, excuse me. It says, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so we have this forerunner for whom John is is now the forerunner of the Davidic king. And he is the one who is announcing his arrival. And yet verse four kind of takes a weird turn. Because Matthew, for some reason, thinks it's important for us to know what John is wearing and what he eats. He says, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Why do we need to know that? Why why is it so important that we know what John wears? That that's, uh, this is biblical authority for us to wear clothes made of camel's hair and a belt, right? That's what we need to be wearing to church. Well, not quite, not quite. And by the way, we can only eat locust and wild honey. No, no, not really. Why is it so important that we know John's fashion statement here? Why is it so important that we need to know what he's wearing? Because this actually points us to someone. It actually goes back, and you may remember in, in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 7, one of the servants comes up to the king and gives him a bad report, and the king says to the servant, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And the servant answers, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And the king says, that is Elijah. And why is Matthew so concerned that we know what John is wearing? Because his outfit is calling our attention back to Elijah the prophet, whom God says will be the one who is the forerunner of the day of the Lord that is to come. See, all of this is done by biblical authority. John is, is his entire Ministry is bound by this biblical authority. 
In other words, even the clothes that John wears is calling attention and is designed in order to fulfill his purpose that God has given him. You see, John gave himself totally to the purpose of calling people to repentance. Even the clothes he wore, even what he ate, he, he didn't eat extravagantly, but only what was necessary substance. He completely dedicated his mission. He completely dedicated his life as one who was under authority. Everything he did served that greater purpose. Beloved, is that, can you say that about your life? Can you say that about yourself? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Love it, before you do something, do you, do you ask yourself, will this result in more glory for God or less glory for him? Have we brought everything in our lives under the authority of the word what about everything in our church? Have we brought everything in our church under the authority of the word? What is it we are doing here? This is what repentance is all about. We are continually bringing ourselves more and more and more, continually and continually, uh, our lives into, um, into submission to what the word tells us. Is there anything in your life that you have not submitted to the, to the authority of God's word? Is there anything that you are knowingly disobeying? Is there anything that you are, I know the word says this, but I wanna be this way instead. Are you holding on to something? Holding on to something for yourself? Keeping something back? Or have you submitted your whole life? Are you continually bringing your life into, into adherence to God's word? Are we continually working to bring our church into greater conformity with God's word? We must be submit to biblical authority. Greater and greater submission to the Lord. And so... And one of the ways we do that, one of the ways we will show that is when we commit to biblical methods. Biblical methods, verse five and six. You know, you would think that John with a ministry like his and a ministry that is really built around judgment, ministry that is calling people to repent and calling a spade a spade. If you look at Luke uh, chapter, chapter three and the details that we have of his ministry here, I mean, he hits every single person. You, you must do this. You, you must do this. You, you must do this. You would think a ministry like that would, would be terrible that <laughs> no one would come, but they were coming by the, by the droves. They were coming to hear him. He had no miracles. He had no stage. He had no stage lights. He had no praise band following him. Uh, the only thing we do know is that he was, in, he was in the wilderness of Judea by the Jordan River. And I think that more than likely, perhaps he was there, you know, that when Jews came from Galilee to Judea, they would often travel on the east side of the Jordan in order to avoid Samaria. And then they would cross back over at some point in Judea. And I suspect that that's probably somewhere near where John was. And so he kind of went where the people were 
and he's proclaiming this message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was simply dressed. He wasn't extravagantly dressed. He wasn't, he, none of these things. He simply preached this message. And in verse five, then Judea and Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is actually pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. You see, this baptism that John did, it was a baptism for repentance of sins. And, and the Jews had all kinds of washings and, and ritual baths that they were supposed to take. And, and there have been all kinds of efforts to try to figure out, okay, which one is John doing uh, some of them say that, uh, that John here is, is doing a baptism of, of, of a total Jewish washing. Yes, there were those. But you see, the difference is, is that every single one of those, it was the Jew's responsibility to wash himself. He wasn't being baptized or washed by someone else. It was his responsibility to do it on his own. And so some people say that this is the baptism of Jewish conversion. Whenever a proselyte would come in, they would, they, would be, they would be totally immersed. Yes, that's true, except for the fact that John is baptizing Jews, not Gentile converts. So what's happening here? I think John's baptism is completely unique. I think we are moving toward, I don't think we're quite there yet, but we are moving toward Christian baptism and that we're demonstrating what? We're demonstrating two things. Number one, beloved, when the Jews came to John and confessed their sins and were baptized completely into the water, understand that they would have immediately thought a Gentile proselyte. And what they are confessing here is that because of my sins, I am as unclean as a Gentile. That's what's happening here. They are saying, I am as separate from God. I have no standing before God. My sin has separated me from God. Just as the unclean Gentiles, I am unclean before God and I must be washed by the waters of confession. They understand that they are alienated from God and also they understand that, that in that they are not baptizing themselves like most of the Jewish washings were, they understand that this is not, I cannot cleanse myself, that I must be cleansed by another. Beloved, there's a reason why when we baptize, it's always me or, or someone else in the water with the person. Because when you are baptized, you're baptized by another. There's symbolism in that, that I understand that I cannot save myself there's symbolism there. There's symbolism that I, was, that I am dead and trespasses in sin, that I, am, that I am separate from God and that now I am being identified with Christ. I am being washed clean and rising with Christ to walk in newness of life. He's using biblical methods that proclaim a biblical message. That's why we need to use biblical methods. Beloved, if you haven't been baptized, I, I encourage you to do that. I implore you to do that. There's a reason for it. 
Therefore, from there it says that they must confess their sin and in doing so, they recognize they are completely helpless to help themselves. John called them to confess their sins and be baptized. They came and submitted to the biblical understanding of who they were and using the methods that God ordained, they came into a new understanding of the kingdom. You know, it's amazing how many churches today are preaching a gospel of self-realization, self-esteem, being your best you, living your best life now. That one's always kind of cracked me up. I know I've told you this before, but you know, think about it. If your best life is now, that means you're going to hell. <laughs> you don't want that. I don't want my best life now. I want my best life to come in the future. I watched a message the other day where this church, a big church down in Florida and it was all self-help, self-guru. At part of the message, uh, the pastor showed an interview where he went to a local gym and they were talking about how, how to exercise and how to, how to get yourself all fit and doing all of this stuff to, so, that they can, so that they can have their best year in 2022. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. But that's not the message of the church, Beloved. The message of the church is that you are a lost sinner on your way to hell and that there is a redeemer who is ready to save you. That's the message of the church. By all means, go to the gym, get healthy. Yeah, yeah great, you know, wonder. I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't do that. I need to do a little bit of that myself, you know, but, but that's not the message of the church. It's not the message of the church. We must confess, repent our sins, these teachers are appealing to itching ears. They are, pre they are not preaching the gospel. They are preaching, uh, they, are, they, are, they are preaching lies of self-esteem self and self-actualization. Basically, if you put the word self in front of it, it's a problem. And so... We cannot abandon our message. Beloved, we can never stray from the message of Christ crucified. We're not going to gain the world through political forcing. We're not going to, gain, we're not going to win the world through political maneuvering. We're not going to win the world by be kind, be good, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date the girls who do type messages. Jesus is gonna win the world through the gospel. And that is the message that he gave us. Christ alone saves. Every other message will fail. So we've got to maintain our commitment to that. We've got to maintain our commitment to call people to the kingdom of heaven. We need to commit to, biblical, uh, to the biblical message. We must commit to the biblical authority of that message. And to proclaim that message, we must commit to biblical methods. We have to do that. You know, Isaiah 40, chapter three, when it talks about preparing the way of the Lord, making his path straight, you know, what that's referring to is a, is a, um, 
is a tendency, uh, as, a, as a custom that they would do, that when the emperor would go somewhere, whenever the emperor would travel, they would, they, the soldiers and the slaves would go out in front of him and they would literally build a new road and for him to travel on. And, and sometimes it was pretty extreme. I mean, they would clear out a forest. They would, uh, sometimes they would even fill up a valley. Sometimes they would actually dig into a mountain so that the emperor, so that nothing will hinder the emperor's way to get where he is going. By the way, this happened to me. Uh, they still do this today. And uh, I remember night and day, 1997, I was working at UALR in their registration office. And I had had a bad day. And I'm going to be honest with you, I was a little grumpy, having a little bit of road rage. I was in the flesh. It was a long time ago. Hasn't happened since. And, um, and so I was driving on, uh, on Roosevelt Road in Little Rock. And, and there is something about that road that it is just a magnet for bad drivers, and so I got out on I-30, ready to go home in Palm Bluff, and guys, the cars were standing still. And that was not the day to mess with me. I was honking my horn. I was like, don't these people know how important I am and how important it is for me to get home right now? I found out very quickly how important I was because... Uh, about 20 minutes later, I saw the motorcade for President Clinton come by. And I've been caught in three of these now, by the way. When we lived in Colorado Springs, uh, President or Vice President at the time, Biden came to speak at, uh, uh, at the Air Force Academy and we lived right off of Highway 24 and there was one time we were stuck there for hours, for an hour, I think it was. You wonder why I hate politics? <laughs> you get stuck in one of these little motorcades, you're gonna hate them. And so... But that's what they do. They, they remove all traffic. They remove all hindrances. They remove all obstacles so that the president can get where he's going with no hindrance and nothing in the way. Beloved, let me ask you a question this morning. What is in the way for King Jesus to get where he's going in your heart? You see, King Jesus is, his goal is to come into your heart. And what is in your life, what is in your heart that is hindering him from getting where he's going? The king needs to get inside your heart. He needs to come in and take your life and take over. He needs to recreate you into a new creation, a new person. He needs to wipe away all the sin and give you new life in himself. What is it that you are hanging on to to stop him from doing that? What is worth the price of your soul? What will it profit if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? What's, what are you holding back? What are you not surrendering to him? Beloved, he wants your whole heart, all your thoughts, all your affections, all your whole life. What are you holding back? What's in the way? I pray you would give that, you would surrender that, you would forsake it, and you would crucify it today, repent of it, so that Christ can have all of you, and so that he will be Lord in your life. 
Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for John the Baptist and his faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for this word you have given us. And I pray, Father, that in this time of just quick reflection, Lord, that you would have your way in our lives, that you would help us to know what it is that we need to do, Lord. And if there's anything that is stopping us, anything that is hindering us from giving our lives completely to you, Lord, may we forsake it and may we crucify it on your cross. Lord, have us all, have all of us. And I pray that you would take over and be Lord as you are. Let's stand together. I'm just gonna ask you to uh, bow your heads and just kind of reflect for a few moments of what's been said and, and ask yourself this morning, what, what am I holding back? Is my whole life belong to Jesus or is there something that I am holding on to? We can't really do a traditional altar call this morning, but beloved, the the invitation is there for you to ask yourself that important question. What am I holding back from Jesus Christ? What sinful part of my old self am I hanging on to this morning? I'll just ask you to reflect on that for a few minutes. Mm-hmm.